All right. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 58. That's our passage for today. We're going to finish off the chapter. Um, and let me be hopefully not the first to wish you happy Mother's Day. Um, but if your mom's not here, now is your chance. Text her, I guess. I mean, this is your reminder that it's Mother's Day. Um, but in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we've been going through this passage. We're coming into the middle of Paul's uh, longest theological dissertation on the resurrection, uh, which is an important topic and one that blesses us. So we'll just read, uh, starting in verse 35, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. It's a great passage. Verse 35, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. It says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. For there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial hard word, bodies. And the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from, one, from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God, we ask once more your blessing on our service. Uh, this is our service to you. We are offering ourselves as 
our bodies even as living sacrifices. We are coming to you humble, wanting to be uh, under your word, under the teaching of your word. We, we pray that you would accept what we have to offer, which is something very small, our time, ourselves, our attention. Uh, and we pray that you would continue faithfully to offer yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's solid preaching. And we shouldn't expect less from the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, but it, it's good stuff. Um, he's taking the, uh, the historical facts of the resurrection, which he, he mentioned in the first part of the chapter. He's, he's provided uh, accounts of eyewitnesses that have you know, seen the resurrected Lord, and he's provided the evidence of changed lives, his own not the least. Um, and then now he's, he's pulling on all, all the theological implications of this glorious miracle of resurre resurrection. And he doesn't leave it in the realm of intellect alone. This is an ivory tower academia, academia. The resurrection is our very real hope and a very real motivation for living a holy life. And in this, this last verse that we ended with last week, you just kind of glance back, Paul used this topic of resurrection to encourage the Corinthians to examine themselves and to repent. He said, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Uh, the resurrection is kind of the, the thrust behind that argument. Because Christ is risen, we have a, a, an eternal life, a quality of life that is modeled after the resurrection to now live. We're not, we are no longer dead in our sins. We've been raised up to newness of life. So live like it. Wake up to the newness of life. Paul had started the chapter off with an explanation of what he's doing. He said in verse 1, you can scan back there in 15.1, he says, I declare to you the gospel. And that is exactly what he's doing. And that's what he's done. The gospel includes a call to repentance, to turn from sin and to pursue Christ. Now, in the part of the chapter that we're coming to this morning, Paul is going to answer some objections from people who are stuck on the how of resurrection. He said, it's happened. He says, it's going to happen for all of you. He said, it's really important. But there's those people saying, wait, like, really, though? And he's like, yes, really. They're like, okay, so like this, this body, like I'm going to die, and then it's going to come back to life, like zombies. He's like, okay, all right, I see that we need to talk about some of these things. Uh, what's more likely, rather than people having objections, saying, well, how is that going to happen, is he's addressing people who are using these objections as defenses, people who have already made up their mind that they're not going to believe in that kind of resurrection. And in order to support their position, they're putting up objections like, well, how does that work physically? This doesn't make any sense. Remember, Paul's already said there's some in your church in Corinth that do not believe in the resurrection. He says they have no knowledge of God. So those people are, are saying, well, obviously resurrection can't work because once something's dead, it stays dead, obviously. Now you see throughout the Bible and church history and our own experiences, just talking to people, we see people who get caught up in what they see as the literal, and by doing so, they move well beyond the meaningful or sensible. Uh, think of John 3, Nicodemus. He's told by Jesus himself, you must be born again. And then he says something really stupid. He's like, you mean I must return to my mother's womb? Happy Mother's Day. That was the only verse I got in there to do today, but that's it. No, Nicodemus, gross and weird. 
That's obviously not what we're talking about. Everyone else knows that's not what Jesus means, right? We're talking about something else here. In John chapter 6, which we spent a lot of time on, the people in Capernaum, they're offended by Jesus saying that they need to eat his flesh and his blood. Now, of course, I believe there are realities that Jesus was talking about, but what he was definitely not talking about was saying that you need to go up to the carpenter or rabbi closest to you and cut off a piece of his arm and start chewing on it. Everyone knew that wasn't what was meant. So the way we eat his flesh, we drink his blood, is, is not merely physical. It is a physical reality. Blood, uh, bread and wine are real things. But we are going beyond the merely physical or the merely literal. The resurrection of the dead will be absolutely physical. It will also not be merely physical. We will have bodies. That seems very clear. But it will be more than that. It's not just resuscitation of a corpse. The objections that were probably being brought up against this uh, doctrine of resurrection were probably something like this. They're saying, well, if the body dies, it decays, right? So if Jesus doesn't hurry up and come back, there's not going to be any body to raise up from the dead, right? Well, will it rise up in that state, rotten? Will it smell? It stinketh, King James, right? Or it would go further. Okay, so the body decomposes, it becomes soil, and then that becomes plant matter, which bears fruit and is eaten by an animal, and then that dies. And on an atomic level, right, it's all the same stuff. So what, what does that resurrection look like for that poor guy? Is he, is he like an apple in the resurrection? Because like the, the, stop, stop thinking like that. So verse 35, well, actually before 35, he says, uh, or sorry, verse 36, I want to start with, foolish one, that's the answer to those kinds of resurrection, right? Verse 35, I will start there. How are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? The question, which seems rather innocent, was apparently asked with ulterior motives or a lack of goodwill because Paul calls them out and he says, foolish one. The question seems fine, but I think Paul knew the spirit in which it was asked. It's like that wonderful truism, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Only stupid people. And Paul knew who he was talking to. <laughs> and, and Paul's answer isn't stupid. He explains things rather nicely. And continuing in verse 36, he says, What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. What you sow in gardening, the seeds you plant, right? You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. This is a known principle. The grain is buried before it brings life. So Paul could be making a common observation here, something that would make sense to anyone that's planted anything. But it's interesting to know that Jesus says the same thing about his life. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Um, it's his resurrection that we're really concerned with. We're just following it in his footsteps when we hope for our resurrection. The grain is from the seed. The seed does provide life for the grain. However, we know that most of the material that makes up the plant did not come from the, the seed. It's not that there was a miniature oak tree in the acorn, right? The oak tree gets its material from other sources, from the soil, from water, from nutrients, and ultimately, if you trace it all back, from the sun. But just as the beginning of the plant, the seed, does not account for every cell that would eventually make up the plant, so the buried body of a person does not need to provide all the parts of the resurrected person. All life comes from God, just like all biological life is sourced from the sun in one way or another. The resurrected believer will receive his body from the same one that created it. The body you have now 
is the seed form. It will be planted one day in hope, in faith of a harvest. And God is a good gardener who gives to each seed its own body. Paul continues in verse 39, he says, All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Stop there. This is a long way to say something fairly simple. Bodies are different from one another based on where and how the creature was designed to live. Fish live in water. Their bodies are made for water. Birds are meant to fly, and they have the wings to do so. And Paul says there's earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. Right now you're living on earth, and your bodies are designed for this environment. Your resurrected bodies will be made for a different environment. You'll be in heaven in a very real way, and you'll be made for heaven in a very real way. He says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, meaning you couldn't go there now if you tried. You're not built for it. Your, your body's here in these three dimensions, and that's all you got. But there's other stuff going on in heaven that you've got to be changed, and we'll get to that verse, before you can experience those realities. The, the talk about different kinds of glory is interesting. Some have taken this to mean that there will be different like levels of saint in heaven, you know, which I guess you could get out of this. But I think Paul is probably just saying there's different kinds of thing for different reasons. There's one kind of body of a fish, another for a bird. There's things that make the moon really cool and great. There's other things that make the sun really great. There's different kinds of things for different kinds of purposes. And your body that will one day die and be buried is not built for heaven. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. You will be changed. You will be raised incorruptible, which is something you've never experienced before. There are reasons your body is the way it is now, even in its weakness. If you want to read more about the, uh, the body having a different kind of glory, you can consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians when he says he glories in his weakness and his infirmities. That's part of our physical existence now, and it has its purpose but it's not going to be the way it always is. Look back at verse 42, halfway through. It says, the body is sown in corruption. That's when you bury a body. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, if Christ's resurrection is the model for us here, which he is the model for us, his resurrection is the example we have of resurrection, then his spiritual body still has physical elements, right? They touch the scars in his hands. The bodies we receive in resurrection will not be nothings. We won't just be ghosts. We talked a little bit about this in chapter 10 when Paul talks about manna from heaven as spiritual food. That doesn't mean it's like the imaginary food that's in the movie Hook, right? And you just pretend it and then it's real, Okay. The water from the rock. He says that's spiritual drink. But you know what else it was? Water. It was actual physical water. Um, the fact that something is spiritual does not mean it is imaginary or invisible or even non-physical. It means that it is beyond the merely physical. And that's what Christ's body is, and that's what our resurrection will be. Now look at where we've, uh, where we've come and look at our hope uh, where we're headed. Verse 45. 
And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving, or sorry, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. As sons of Adam, we have this origin and this fate. Our origin, dirt. The fate, the same. It's from dust we came, to dust we shall return, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But as sons of God, this is not our fate. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, and that's where his descendants, you and I, will eventually find ourselves dissolving into dirt. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So if Christ is the new Adam, which is kind of what he's explaining here, the new head of a new human race, our inheritance from Adam is no longer the final word. Dust is not our final end. That might have seemed like it was Adam's end, but it's not Christ's end. Christ is not, you know, uh, just king of heaven in a spiritual sense, and we can hope about that, and then once we end here, it's all, it's all over. Christ is king of heaven, ruling and reigning. That's our forerunner, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and it's his end that we look for, look to for our hope, not Adam's. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We are being formed into the image of Christ. We're praying that we grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ. We are given promises that we will rule and reign with Christ. Now, for all of that to happen, a change must happen, and that's what Paul talks about next. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. He's already said that we were uh, sown in corruption, that when we die, our bodies decay. He says that's not the stuff of heaven, and we don't glorify death. We don't. We aren't a death cult. We do rejoice at a believer's funeral, but the whole time we recognize that death is an enemy that will one day be completely and utterly defeated. And Paul has already said that there's a kind of body for the earth, and there's a kind of body for heaven. And we look forward to our full inheritance. We look forward to getting the full body, the next body, being fully clothed or further clothed, as Paul says. If you have one body that's made for this dimension, for earth, you can't inherit the next place where you belong. You can't inherit heaven while still in the, this body that is made for a corruptible stage. Corruption cannot inherit in corruption. How will this be solved? Well, the short version is the Sunday school answer that Paul has been training us to say for the whole chapter. It's Jesus. Okay, it's resurrection. It's resurrection power. Christ rose from the dead in order to show us and prove that death has been defeated. That it looks like the raising of the dead. It looks like an immediate transformation of earthly body into heavenly body. Verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. This, a change is necessary and a change is promised. Let's take this apart. Paul says he's telling a mystery. Now, that's a word that he uses, that Paul uses, in a very specific way. Um, it, a mystery is not a head-scratcher. It's not a, a trick that he's like, you know, once you, once you get through the levels of initiation, I'll tell you the answer to it. 
You know, here's a, a riddle for you. It's not a riddle. A mystery for Paul is something that was not previously known, but is now revealed. Okay, the acceptance of the Gentiles into the promises that God gave Israel, that's a mystery that Paul explains. Um, now the mystery he's talking about, he's talking about it like the last page of a mystery novel, when everything comes together and it finally makes sense. It's a solved mystery that he's talking about, and the solved mystery is this. There will be a generation on this earth that is alive when Jesus returns. We shall not all sleep. This means that the normal avenue towards resurrection, that is death, it's kind of the prerequisite, right? Will be avoided for one specific generation. But will those people not get the resurrected bodies? Paul says, yes, they will. We shall all be changed. The change from an earthly body to a heavenly body will be a change that every believer undergoes. And this is the mystery that Paul gives the church. He says, it's not going to be like this. It's going to be so much better. He talks about this elsewhere where he says, the glory that's coming isn't worth being compared with these light and momentary afflictions like shipwreck multiple times, getting beaten, left for dead, all those light momentary afflictions that Paul went through. That's your introduction for 2 Corinthians, by the way. We're going to start that soon. It says the mystery is it's not like this. We will be changed and we will be made into the image of Christ. We'll look like him, think like him, and we'll be made for heaven itself where we will live forever and ever. The change from earthly body to heavenly body will be a change that every believer undergoes whether or not they have died before the return of Christ. In verse 52, he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. This will happen. The dead will be raised. The living will will be changed and also raised. This uh, change that takes place will happen in conjunction with a catching up, as 1 Thessalonians puts it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 specifically, it's a key verse here, but the whole passage in Thessalonians is a perfect cross-reference for what we've got going on here. So I'm going to read you from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's long enough to where you might want to just turn there yourself, or you can listen to me read it out loud. First um, Thessalonians 4, 13, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the event that Paul is talking about in Corinthians. This is the, the, the moment when the change, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, where this change takes place. The word caught up there, he says we will be, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Uh, it's translated rapturos in Latin, uh, where we get the word rapture from. Uh, the word rapture, as you probably know, it's not in the Bible unless you have a Latin Vulgate Bible, in which case it is there. But 
I don't have one. Um, I want you to read the passage from Thessalonians. I wanted to read the passage from Thessalonians to show not only that this is something that Paul talks about elsewhere, not just in Corinthians. It's an isolated doctrine. But also because in Thessalonians, the purpose of even talking about this future event is given and explained. Comfort one another with these words. The point of our hope, our coming hope of being with Christ forever is that we would encourage one another to live a certain way and to take heart when we are tempted to despair. We long for the return of Christ and his gathering up of the entire church, living and dead, because this is our comfort, resurrection. Eternal resurrected life is our hope. Now, Paul gives us some interesting details back in Corinthians. He says this change from corruption to incorruptibility will happen instantaneously in a twinkling of an eye. In both passages, in Thessalonians and in uh, Corinthians, it mentions a trumpet, the last trumpet. Uh, This has caused some confusion and speculation. There's trumpets in Revelation that people have tried to connect this with. I don't necessarily think that's a real good idea. Uh, The last trumpet is a reference to a military custom of breaking camp. Uh, The last trumpet is a figure of speech, meaning strike the tents, put out the fires, let's go. We're out of here. We're done with this place. This is an event in the future that each one of us ought to look forward to, where a trumpet is blown and God's people say, yep, we're done here. We've read that Christ is the first fruits. He's the down payment. We believe that death has been defeated, but we also know that as we are stuck, kind of caught in the in-between, We know that death will be defeated, and it's at this moment when Jesus returns as Lord and King that we will see the fullness of this victory over death. Verse 44 says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It is when this change that happens in a twinkling of an eye happens that these things will come to pass. Death will be swallowed up in victory. We've mentioned Isaiah 25 before in, in our Corinthian study and elsewhere where God promises to make a feast for all nations and then he swallows up death. It's death for dessert. That's important to know. Paul says that death will be swallowed up in victory Isaiah says that God will swallow up death. Both of these things are true because Jesus is our victory. He is the resurrection and the life. Then Paul quotes this passage from the Old Testament here. Um, Not any version of the Old Testament you've got today. We're getting a lot of things like that this morning, aren't we? Um, This is a quote from Hosea 13, verse 14. And I'm going to read it from the New King James here. And you'll see how it's a little, little different than what Paul says here says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Um, it's a really cool, did I say New King James? I didn't mean it. Take that back. Record it. Strike it off the recording. Uh, it's a really cool verse. I'll get to this in a second. Where God is saying that he will be the plague of death. And the desolation and the destruction of the grave, which is really cool. But you can see that the words are very different than what Paul uses in Corinthians, right? That's because your Old Testament is translated from the Hebrew, 
But the main translation of the Old Testament in Paul's day was a translation into the Greek called the Septuagint. And the guys who translated the Septuagint did a lot of verses a little differently, and this is one of them. In both cases, whether Hebrew or Greek, God is the victor and death is the loser. This is our hope. It's a hope that is so strong that it gives the believer courage to look death in the eye and say, you are weak. You've got nothing on me. I mean, you can't read this passage and not be somewhat surprised at how bold Paul is when he addresses death itself. Oh, death, where is your sting? Charles Spurgeon talked like this too. He said, I will not fear thee, death. Why should I? Thou lookest like a dragon, but thy sting is gone. Thy teeth are broken, O old lion. Wherefore should I fear thee? I know thou art no more able to destroy me, but thou art sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate, wherein I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever. Well, if that's all you got, death, you got nothing on me. Now, in that passage from Hosea, it's God saying, death, I will be your plagues. You ever imagine death being afraid of something? <laughs> death, O oh grave, I will be your destruction. This is the word of Christ to our final enemy. He says, I will destroy you. And he keeps his promises. And so next we've got this bit of theology that's packed into a little tiny verse. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. This is more an explanation of some things that he's already said. He said, oh, oh death, where is your sting? Uh, this tells us that, that it's as dead as our sins. That's where the sting is. The sting has been removed. It has been put to death. The sting of death is the sin that Christ has forgiven. Therefore, that death no longer has the final word. If you do the work of sin, you get the paycheck of death, right? We know that from Romans 6, Romans 6.23. Death has authority to hurt, sting all those who are under sin. And that's everybody. Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. And then this part, the strength of sin is the law. You can get the explanation for this in Romans 5 as well. Paul points out that even though there is sin before the law, just like there is faith before the law, it is the law that authoritatively condemns those who break it. The law names the sin and reveals the wickedness of the lawbreaker. With the law present, the knowledge of sin increases. Romans 5 verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Back to Corinthians, verse 57, he says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is defeated because sins are forgiven. The grave does not have the victory because Christ rose from the dead. Sin appears to have authority, and the law convicts of sin, but condemnation is not the final word. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now, remember how Paul talked about grace earlier in the chapter, about how the grace of God towards Paul was proven to be effective because Paul worked so well. He says, I worked more than any of you, but it wasn't me. It was grace. And then he even says it wasn't Paul working, you know, it was grace within him. Paul has been telling the Corinthians of the marvelous grace of God. And he expects that this grace will prove itself in their lives. He tells us in his final verse how we're to handle these beautiful, life-changing, mind-blowing truths and really how these grace-filled doctrines have the power to change us. Last verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's talked about resurrection for 58 verses. What do we do about it? We stand on it. We do not waver from our conviction that Christ raises the dead and has conquered all our enemies, including death itself. We stand steadfast, immovable, in the assurance that he is coming back, that our lives on this earth are short, but eternity is long. If this is your worldview, if this is your perspective, one of a long eternity stretching out to infinity, you will see that the work you have to do while you are still in this body matters a great deal. A conviction of resurrection leads people, leads God's people, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the effect grace had in the life of Paul, and it's how God will work in us. An eternal perspective filled with confidence leads us into our callings as kings and priests to our God. The confidence of resurrection gives us boldness to use our giftings to serve the church, to reach the lost, to be obedient in sufferings. Because with heaven being the most real thing we can experience, and the return of Christ being the thing in history we are most sure of, even though it's future history, we can work knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. The work we do is worth something. It has eternal value. The resurrection makes our Christian lives worth something. It makes our work worth something. The resurrection promises that the sufferings of this life will be worth something, but they won't be worth comparing with the glory that he's prepared for us. The glory of resurrection that makes light and momentary afflictions in the here and now not worthy to be compared with the glory ahead, the good things that he has prepared for those who love him. The Corinthians had their work cut out for them, and you read this book and wonder sometimes, how can Paul have such confidence in their success? How can Paul really call these people saints, right? Here's how. Paul believes in a God who raises the dead, and so do we. So we stand on this gospel, steadfast and movable by the grace of God, abounding in the work of God, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because Christ is risen, our work, our lives, and even our deaths have meaning. And our lives and deaths are things that are filled with hope. We live in hope of Christ's return. We work in hope of his return. We live and die in, in hope of a very real resurrection. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you and we glory in these truths. We fix our hope in the resurrected Christ. We thank you that death is not the final word. We thank you that we can trust you as the creator God and, and a good farmer uh, to know what to do with the seeds that have been planted. We don't always know the how, but we know you. And we thank you that we have a real true resurrection to look forward to. Fix our eyes on that hope. Teach us in the meanwhile to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And in this meanwhile, as we're caught between the defeat of death and the final realization of that defeat, we pray that we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing it's just grace upon grace. We love you and we ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. Let's doxology.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.